BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello, welcome to a bonus edition of the Not The Top 20 podcast, an episode that we are super excited about. Have you guys noticed that managers get sacked a lot? Yeah, so have we. In fact, we have to talk about it seemingly every single Monday. uh, We had four managerial sackings to talk about on the last Monday pod. We are in full swing when it comes to sacking season much as I hate that phrase eight of the 72 clubs have already changed their manager this season and we wanted to take a breath step back zoom out and record a bonus episode in which we talk about managerial changes how to measure managerial performance and how to work out when a sacking is the right thing to do the wrong thing to do fair or unfair so welcome to a a special episode of the NTT20 podcast Making a managerial change. When, why, how, and who? George, it's not just going to be me and you giving our opinion because we do that plenty. We've drafted in a, a special guest for today. Yeah, I don't think anyone wants to tune in and listen to me and you talk, have an extra episode just about managers. Uh, so we've brought in somebody uh, who's going to sit alongside us. Omar Chowdhury from 21st Group is here. And Omar, lots of people will know of 21st Group's work uh, across sport. A lot of people will, will know you, will follow you on social media, would have heard you on podcasts and stuff before. But for those who haven't, um, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what TFG do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, firstly, thanks for having me on, guys. So... As you say, I'm from 21st Group, we're a sports intelligence agency based here in London uh, and we work uh, as advisors to teams, to competitions, to investors uh, and we also deliver content for brands and broadcasters and the basis for our business is to use data for all of that. Uh, so our advisory work uh, with teams would be on areas of performance and, and long-term planning with investors on where and how to invest with, with competitions on, on how to set up. Uh, the competitions and obviously content for for broadcasters as well Uh, and my role within the business is basically insight delivery Um, so there's a lot of complicated data that's produced by our very smart data science team and it's my job to try and make that talk to the real world and 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 people often inside of football who might not be as as data literate Um, so it's a fun job Uh, it's quite a varied job but uh, it's very exciting as well this is one example of you talking to people not quite as data literate as your data scientists, I think. Um, and that's, sorry, just to clarify, that's me and Ali, not the, the listeners, I should point out as well. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 
your management and head coaches is like a topic that I find particularly fascinating within football. This week, I've just written a piece on NTT20.com around the way that people talk about managers that I think is kind of strange, where I'm never really sure if people necessarily always understand exactly what a manager does, maybe place a bit too much emphasis within um, certain actions that may not be driven by the head coach. Um, But it's fair to say when we're talking about when, why, who and how to make a managerial change. You know, it's hard to, to really find anyone better placed than, than 21st Group and, and yourself in order to uh, to talk about that because um, as far as I know, and you can confirm this or not, you know, TFG are, are at the front and centre in terms of, of looking to help clubs make these changes and do so in a smart way. Yeah, absolutely. We, we've been involved in loads of head coach hire processes over the years, over the 10 years we've been going as a business. And that's ranged from top international and Champions League teams all the way down to, to League One and League Two. Um, and, and as you say, I think p- part of the way that the average fan, but even a lot of football clubs think about manager hire processes and manager evaluation processes is steeped in a kind of old school approach, which is the role of the manager being a kind of all-encompassing figure at the club. Um, but increasingly, I think for a number of reasons, firstly, A, the amount of money that's now in football uh, and the stakes that exist for, for clubs across football, but particularly in the EFL, um, and B, the types of owners and investors that you're getting within the EFL. There's now a much more sharper focus on professionalising things behind the scenes. And what that means is that clubs now have much bigger backroom staffs, much more clearer responsibilities within a club around things like recruitment and performance and so on. Um, But it also means that the process around hiring a manager is very different, um, much more professional um, than it ever has been. Um, And I think what would be great to talk through is just talk about how clubs actually go through that process now, how they actually evaluate their existing head coach, decide when to make a change, actually understand whether making a change is the right thing in the first place. so yeah, and different clubs have different circumstances and it's always really interesting to see how teams at different stages, at different points in the league, how they think about head coach hire. Um, but increasingly now as well, they're using data. That's obviously a big part of, of what we do in these processes. In the news in the EFL this week has been Birmingham City's appointment of Wayne Rooney to replace John Eustace, sitting fairly pretty in the playoffs, albeit there is a, a large chunk of teams in the championship separated by not very many points. So focusing on league position at this stage of the season does uh, feel like missing the point somewhat. Um, but Birmingham City, very clear that in Rooney, they believe they have hired, and this was important to them, a born winner uh, Omar, so to test the chops of TFG, I'm assuming that you have some sort of database with a born winner filter on it, because that is crucial, in, you know, in, in modern management. It's the key parameter, isn't it? Can you, <laughs> can you quantify the born winner? And, and yes, we have a metric that quantifies. No, we don't. Um, it's, look, everyone everyone kind of wants, I guess, a winner. I mean, the, the winning is, is the thing in football. Um, you know, it's it's the thing that people want to do anyway, but certainly from an ownership perspective, which is where we tend to work, it's the thing that drives, you know, the valuation of the club and the revenues and so on. Um, t- typically, yeah, when evaluating a coach, performance and winning is, is one aspect of it, but there are others um, that come into it. So playing style is, is a massive one. And I think that was also something that was alluded to in the Rooney appointment was around him coming in and playing with a certain playing philosophy that aligned with uh, what the leadership of the club wanted. 
Uh, but there are also other considerations around playing young players, around engaging with the community, uh, around kind of understanding the football club. And we, you know, we've seen a lot probably in the last five years around understanding the club's DNA and aligning with the club's DNA and so on, which, which I think is, um, has merit as a conversation. I think what's really interesting is to begin to understand what are some of the things that actually drive success and what are some of the things that are just assumptions that you know we think are important but aren't actually important so whether that's you know experience um either in that division or more generally um as a manager is that important for success is having done a particular job somewhere a good predictor of repeating that job in another area and i think all of these things we often assume to be true and, and often as fans you know we say oh he's done that there so why can't he do that here but actually with some of the data you can test some of these, these things and crucially that gives you confidence as an ownership as a decision maker whether to you know stay with that assumption or go down a different assumption and i'm sure we we'll perhaps get into some of those assumptions when we get to talking about how you actually hire the coach that you touched on something there that always i mean that there are a lot of things people say in, the, in this conversation that i that really irk me but what one of them is and this isn't something you said this is something that, that you hear a lot in the kind of the, the conversation around managers is we need someone who knows this league we need someone who has won promotion from this league before we need someone who knows the league's players is there any actual evidence to suggest that that's true because my theory with this is that Say you're a League One side and you hire someone who has 500 games managed in le- at League One level before. So therefore he knows the league. And he may have managed a decent League One side and done okay and won a promotion at, at a time. But if he's available to you in League One, doesn't that suggest that over the amount of time he's managed, if he was better than the, the division, he probably wouldn't still be managing at that, that level? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And that's a great example. And when we've looked at in the past... Um, at a Premier League level, coaches that have are in their second, third, or fourth Premier League job don't perform any better than coaches in their in their first Premier League job. Uh, and what we also see more generally is that coaches who are in their first job, full stop, actually don't really perform better or worse. There's perhaps a little bit more variance around how they could perform, but but on average, um, they won't necessarily perform better or worse than than coaches that are more experienced at that level. Um, and as you say, like particular experiences around having earned promotion or um, having kept the team up or whatever, again, don't, aren't always that predictive of whether they'll they'll do the same again. Um, I, think, I think there are some coaches who will be particularly good at coaching a certain caliber of players. Um, you know, particularly when you get to the very top end of football, there'll be some coaches who are just really good at coaching big egos and in the Champions League and, and kind of more, you know, technically gifted players. Uh, and there'll be certain coaches who are set up to help you know, an underdog team because of the way that they play and so on. But but again, I think it, it's, it's important to focus on the particular circumstances in which you're in, your squad, your division, and whether those align to that rather than just assuming it's a cut and paste job from, from another job. So yeah, I, I agree. I think um, it can be very lazy just to assume, oh, he's, you know, he's got the experience. And we see this in players as well. Like there's, there's no correlation between the amount of experience a club has of players in that division. So in the championship, for example, and then how well they do in that league. Like a, a squad with, with more historical Champions League appearances in the in the squad don't don't tend to outperform clubs on the on the same budget. Just just quickly there on that because there's a couple of examples that I think ring true. Like if you look at 
managers who've been successful in the championship in recent seasons. Like Daniel Farker has obviously won promotion out of the championship twice into the Premier League, struggled to do it at the Premier League level. Marcelo Bielsa, of course, took Leeds out, probably you know deserved to do it twice, but did it just the once um, and struggled in in the Premier League after a period of time. Um, Vincent Company may be going through a similar thing at the moment with Burnley. That just strikes me as a case of these are managers who like their teams to play technical football who are going to thrive when they have a squad of players who are technically better than the opposition rather than being they know the championship therefore they've won out of it it before this is their level it's more the profile of the squad compared to the opposition that is actually the thing that is the 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 driving force of the success yeah that's absolutely spot on and and as a general rule of thumb if you're towards the bottom of any league you're better off having a slightly lower scoring playing style because ultimately you want to keep games a little bit tight so you can upset better opposition, nick a 1-0 win, get a 1-0 draw, 0-0 draw and therefore accumulate points that way. Whereas if you're one of the better teams in the league, you want to play a bit more expansive because if there are three or four goals in the game, they're likely to bounce your way rather than um, go to the weaker opposition. And so generally, as you say, be also a company with more expansive playing styles that will suit a team towards the top of the league. And, and the irony is in some ways that and we see this, you know, a little bit of the likes of, if you look at who historically the likes of Liverpool, so Liverpool hired Brendan Rodgers from a Swansea who are towards the bottom of, of the Premier League rather than maybe an Allardyce or a Pulis who'd arguably done better, right, in, in the Premier League because actually that style that would have suited the top of the Championship actually translates better to the top of the Premier League than a style at the bottom of the Premier League to the top of the Premier League. And, and again, goes back to that point around, it's not just about the league itself, it's about the specific circumstances of that club and, and what it takes to win for that club in that in that league. George and I, albeit we've been doing this very much from the outside, have always extolled the virtues of what we perceive to be a more evidence-based approach within a club, structures in place in order to, to make decisions which have evidence behind them rather than emotion behind them. Now, to my understanding, that very much plays into the sort of work that the 21st Group would do when uh, working with a club. So I suppose I say all that to ask, how would you advise a club to judge its manager and maybe more pertinently, how not to judge a manager unfairly? Yeah, yeah great question. I, I think, firstly, expectation setting is paramount. Um, and it's, it's not often, certainly when you see, you know, managers getting announced and, and um, owners coming out and uh, when they appoint the new manager being very clear on what those expectations are as often to play play good football you know move the team up the league and actually that can create obviously behind the scenes you're hoping it is a bit more a bit more structured but often having seen these processes before it, it is often quite ambiguous what the expectation is um, on a coach and you can do that through data because you know fundamentally if you've got a certain expectation set by budget, if you've got the 10th biggest budget in the league, you might expect to finish 10th. Um, but actually what you want your coach to do is outperform the budget, right? You don't just want your coach to come in and, and say, okay, well, let's improve our budget to the sixth and I'll finish, take you into sixth place. That's not what you want. Um, so that helps have a conversation there around what, um, you know, what the manager should be expected to do. And therefore, you know, fundamentally, the first starting point is results. Where is it relative to, to that expectation? And also, where is the team likely to finish at the end of the season? Which gets you into that world of prediction science, right? Ultimately, when you're making any decision about a manager and you're making any evaluation on a manager, you are making a prediction about how that manager will do in the future relative to some replacement that you may or may not have in mind. Um, and so, 
this is where we think data is really important because data is a great way of making predictions. You can backtest data to get a sense of where things are likely to go in the future within a range of probable outcomes. So if I'm, you know, if I'm say I'm currently 21st in the league and I have a 20% chance of relegation, the question I should be asking as an owner is not, is this manager going to take me down or not? It's, is this, if I get a new manager, do my odds of relegation fall to 10% to 5% or do they stay in a similar, similar kind of level? Uh, if I stick with my current manager, is it likely to increase over time because they've lost the dressing room? There's you know all kinds of issues behind the scenes. So those are the types of things um, that a, a manager should be judged on. And then going down a level from that, you're trying to understand what are some of the kind of key drivers of where the team may go in the future and understanding underlying performance. And I know you guys look at this quite a lot and understand it well is, is looking at things like expected goals to understand has the team been performing well but unlucky or, or, or lucky um, you know what's the quality of the opposition that's been played as well particularly at this point in the season where you can have quite skewed schedules you know having played uh, a dozen games or so so yeah try, try to account for those things that are related to, to results and the core drives of results and then there's the broader stuff which is around playing style there can often be a misalignment around the extent to which a team is playing in the style that that um, the club wants and the fans want are they playing young players because that you know the academy is a big driver of value for the club etc 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 so starting with results and then evaluating them on more specific club things as, as they go along would you suggest that as part of the the appointment and a part of the hire there were fairly specific targets on a number of different levels put in place where the manager can at least be fairly understanding and clear on what is expected of that person and therefore not be at the whims of, of emotion, but rather have fairly clearly set out targets to hit and therefore not that much room for, for argument if, if they're very clearly not being met. Yeah, exactly. And to be fair, that's happening more and more at a player level, right? Players are being held accountable for their performances, whether it's the right metrics sometimes. You know, a lot of players are held to account on distance run or, or, or things like that, which may not truly drive performance but in the same way you think about it for players as you say the same way you think about it in other businesses you've got to be able to do that with your manager and I think the struggle is sometimes doing that part way through a manager's reign where things are starting to get rocky and you go well can we start to evaluate you against these things and that becomes a very difficult conversation the best best point in which to do is when they're first through the door go look these are the objectives of the club you know we've got the 10th biggest wage bill we want you to try and finish eighth and push for the playoffs um, we want you to play hit these particular metrics on the on the playing style. We want X percent of minutes from from the academy, and at that point, the manager is very unlikely to say no um, because they want the job. They've got the opportunity. They probably see the opportunity. They'll probably you know have a bit of a discussion on the metrics, and then you'll be able to align on a on a sensible middle ground, perhaps. And then you go from there. And it's very easy then to go back and say, look, we agreed these. This is how we how we're tracking. This is some of the context why we're above and below them. But, but when you're going midway into a reign, it, it becomes very, very difficult. And that's obviously where you have to, I guess, as an ownership, either front up that conversation with the manager or, or kind of keep that going quietly in the background and then, you know, make the decision based on the, those inputs. You talk about the context around the, the management role, and that's something that I think often gets lost. You know, now, I guess partly because um, once the transfer window closes, both in the summer and then also in January, the only thing that a football owner can do, the only thing a fan base can, can ask them to do is to sack the manager. Um, and I always wonder, you know, 
because that's all you can do it's all people can ask for but actually surely sometimes and quite a lot of the time there are other factors at play that might mean that even if the manager isn't hitting the KPIs you've set out even if the you know the data itself is is troubling how how do you kind of cut through the noise and establish whether or not accurately it is the manager who, sh- who should be paying the price here rather than having to say he might actually still be having a positive impact even though as a, as a team we aren't performing yeah look fundamentally i think when a manager comes in the, the thing that you're looking for them to influence is can they improve the quality or the performance of the players that you know are in the squad um you know a lot a lot of people think managers are there to recruit the players um you know run the team and then um you know hopefully get some results and a, a lot of managers are heavily involved in recruitment but i think if you can measure the impact that managers are having on individual players i think that's a really important thing to be able to track you know does this coach come in and actually uh, improve the players so i think it all comes back you know speaking earlier about evaluating players being able to understand where a player is at today and, and how their value may be growing or falling um, under the, the existing head coach because as you say injuries you know a tough run of fixtures uh, any number of reasons can um can cause a club's form to dip and, and change but i think if you can see tangible improvements in the players and some of that might be things like you know we're improving at set pieces because actually I'm getting more out of the existing crop of players to do better defending set pieces or attacking set pieces or we're doing better when we're leading in games on, in terms of staying on top of the opposition the players mindset is good they're confident and so on that's the impact of the manager influencing that so you're absolutely right it shouldn't just be looking purely at results it's actually looking at at the impact and trying to evaluate that impact on individual players and if because obviously the underlying numbers are going to come into it massively. And, and I, I assume, say, a, a club contacted you uh, and they were sixth in the, in the league in you know now, in, in early October, international break, and you had a look at the underlying numbers and their XG ratio was massively negative. They were overperforming their XG by, by however much going forward. You'd probably say, you know, you need to be a bit careful here. But, but where do you stand on if, if a manager has, because something I can never wrap my head around, if a manager has a, a genuine track record of basically just outperforming the underlying numbers. So we've seen Sean Dyche do it. <laughs> yeah, we've seen Neil Warnock do it a lot. We've seen Sean Dyche do it at the top level a lot. Again, going to the Premier League, forgive me, listeners, but Gary O'Neill's one at the moment where last season at Bournemouth, like the numbers were, were grim, but they got enough points to stay up comfortably. And, you know, we saw them beat Man City last week, having had three shots, two of them went in. You know, do you believe there are certain people who for whatever reason their management style can consistently belie the underlying data or will it eventually catch up with you? I think there will always be a degree of catching up. Um, it may not catch up all the way and I think the the onus is on the club to, ex- to understand the extent to which it will catch up uh, and it will depend on the individual circumstances and I think this is where you know as a club you have to spend a little bit of resources to work out okay what is our true level what are some of the things that perhaps some of the performance models aren't picking up? So Deitch's teams, you know, consistently are unbelievably good at getting bodies between the the ball and and their own goal. Uh, and that would, you know, clearly explain an ability, you know, inability of opposition to to convert chances, even even accounting for, for some of those factors. So but I think you can as a club sometimes believe too hard that we've got a bit of a wizard here who is going to overachieve their numbers for, for a long period of time like invariably things do catch up with you just perhaps not quite at the rate 
with a particular manager. Um, so it's just about it's just about being fully aware, not totally, you know, spoke about, you know, making decisions emotionally, just like not being carried away with any given run of results or individual performances and, and looking at things in the round and going, okay, well, as I said, going back to a prediction, like where are we likely to be in 10 games time, three months time, uh, and set that as an expectation and work back from there to evaluate the coach. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The big question for me here, Omar, that I've wrestled with for, for so long and still do, uh, is, is essentially, do we, as fans and observers, overestimate the impact of any given manager on a football club's uh, performance. And the reason why this rattles me so much is that I am uneasy with the extent to which the focus is on the manager to the extent that it is uh, as part of sort of general football discourse. I also think that the manager is the most important single person uh, at the football club. So even there, there's a a bit of a confusion. And then, you know, on the sort of uh, numbers side of things, there is one... Uh, study that was presented and discussed in the book Soconomics, which was something of a groundbreaking book in the space, which had the effect of essentially diminishing the impact that a manager has. And the, and as far as I understood it, the idea behind what they said in Soconomics was, well, actually, the impact on of a football manager on a team's performance isn't as large as you think. So I'm, as you can tell, I'm pretty confused and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I, I think I think the truth is is somewhere in between. I, I think the Soconomics study, I guess, is designed a little bit to, I suppose, shock the average football fan in some ways that you know a manager doesn't matter as much as you think. And I, but I, I think if you look at the big the grand scheme of things, the reason Man City are a better team than Sheffield United, for example, no one would say that's purely because of Pep Guardiola, right? They'd say it's because of the, the gap in the quality of, of the squad. And and I think most football fans would accept that. And that's essentially what the Soconomics uh, book was saying. It's like when you, when you look at the grand scheme of things, teams at the top of the league, whatever league you're in, will be better than teams at the bottom of the league, driven primarily by the, by the quality of, of the players that they have. Uh, and, and the number they assigned to it was this kind of 10% of variation in finishing position was, was due to the manager, which which actually, when you break it down, is, is quite significant. Um, you know, Teams have squads of, call it, 25 players, each of those 25 players having a relatively small impact on, um, at an individual level, on, on a team's finishing position. So a manager may not be as important as the squad as a whole, but they're more important, um, certainly in, in our view, than any one individual player. Um, so, you know, if you, if you as a club had a summer where, okay, we need to spend a lot of time making sure we've got a finite amount of time should we spend a lot more time making sure we get absolutely right the manager appointment or absolutely right the key signing as it were you're probably better off spending a bit more time on the manager um, as a a kind of one-to-one comparison Um, but then more 
more broadly, I think, yeah, the, the idea is that there's no silver bullet in football. Like, there are lots of small individual component parts that make a football team good or bad. Um, and as you said at the top, George, there's perhaps a misconception on what managers do. Increasingly, even going down to League One, League Two level, managers have a perhaps a narrower role than what they ever used to have. You know, they used to be the kit man, the physio, the analyst, the, you know, um, the recruiter and everything else. Now they have generally much more focus on on a recruit on a uh, on a coaching role, um, and therefore there are a whole bunch of other people that sit around them, uh, and a whole bunch of other things that that help drive the performance of football clubs. So, um, yeah, fundamentally, managers do matter a lot in in the you know compared to other things. But but as any, they're only one cog of a much bigger thing, which, which sounds like a bit of a cop out. But hopefully that all made sense. But 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 also, but given that they you know, even if people overestimate the impact of a manager, is it still fair to say that when you look at the financial, the finances around management recruitment, and you know, you often hear fans talk about, you know, we, we can't afford to sack him, and, and and the rest of things like that. Given how inflated transfer fees are now, and given how much, how high player wages are, is it fair to say? I mean, it, it strikes me like like smart management recruitment remains one way where you can get a massive edge without having to spend a lot of money yeah absolutely we completely agree with that and you say there's there's really particularly afl level no transfer fees paid for managers um you know that there is some poaching but but generally i think the fees are pretty nominal compared to some of the transfer fees even paid Uh, and obviously as you say that the wages aren't um often as big as what what a top player might be at uh, at a team um, I think the big challenge is with a player when you sign them for five grand a week and, and a one million pound transfer fee you have a reasonable degree of confidence of the impact that they might make on on your team and I think that that's partly because a there's a relatively efficient market for footballers as we said you know be- better footballers will kind of play at higher levels worse footballers play at lower levels um uh, and generally, you know, clubs are, are spend a lot of resources on, on scouting players and so on. But also, players are kind of probably slightly less context dependent than managers. So, managers' success at any one club is probably driven by a lot more intangible, unquantifiable factors than a player might be at, you know, at, at one club. Um, that isn't to say it can't be done. And obviously, you know, we, we've made a bit of a business out of supporting clubs on that process to try and quantify some of these things and actually just fundamentally try and understand what has driven a manager's success so you can understand the context as best you can so you're right I think there is an opportunity I think some of the the reason clubs haven't gone out of their way to spend quote-unquote big money on um, on managers because there isn't probably quite the level of diligence yet in the same way they do it on on players and therefore if you haven't done the same level of diligence then perhaps you aren't prepared to spend the same amount of money on it to what extent would you uh, advise clubs to have almost an ongoing list of uh, targets or at the very least of the profile of manager that they uh, that that fits their club even in the good times perhaps because as you've mentioned occasionally a manager will get hired by another club you know to what extent is it important to be constantly thinking about succession planning even let's say if things are going well but particularly if they're not yeah, it's it's kind of absurd the lack of succession planning that does take pl- place at football clubs, given you know what we've just discussed around the importance of, of a manager. It's the most important role 
uh, at the club and yet it's the role that people are least prepared for for, for a change um, and just like in in any other business you prepare for key people um, to leave for whatever reason um, and I think the reason that is the case it doesn't happen is, is partly out of a fear that you kind of get caught talking to another candidate right it's um, you know football's a a small place you you know you only have to be caught in a cafe chatting to an agent or a or a coach whatever for, for rumours to circulate so I totally understand that nervousness it's normally um, a service station isn't it it's normally a service session. This is the EFL. They don't do cafes here. <laughs> Apologies. Um, but there, but this is where I think the role of data can be really helpful because data is non-invasive. Um, so if you're a League One club and you know you, you may be struggling in the bottom half and you might be thinking, well, we've got another sprint to the next international break, and if um, well, perhaps not in, in League One, but in, in the Championship, you know, we'll sprint to the next international break. What? Um, you know, we may may make a change there then at the very least you should feel prepared that you've got a long list of, of five ten names that are you know rough probably roughly available either because they're out of work or because they're coaching at a lower level therefore lower salaries and therefore might be an opportunity to poach um and just doing some diligence on them and this is really simple like you know a lot of clubs don't uh, don't even do that but but even just looking basically at their track record or their playing style or the extent to which they've improved teams, improved players. You know, some of this doesn't have to be sophisticated data. I think a lot of what we do is try and make sure that those comparisons are fair and, and across leagues. So not just looking at win percentages of coaches, but understanding what was their expected win percentage given the budget that they have or to what extent did they improve the win percentage of, of that team given um, you know, the underlying performance of the team. Um, as I say, playing style, to what extent does a uh, the playing style that that coach has played historically align with the qualities of the players that we have within our own squad. So if that coach is a high press, um, high line type of coach, do we actually have players that can play that attribute? Even if we wanted to move to that, even if we didn't play that playing style today and we wanted to move, do we actually have a squad that, that meets that? And to what extent, even if we did want to, can a coach kind of change their playing style or take a uh, take a club on that journey? So all these things I think can be evaluated externally through data, such that when it reaches the point, call it you know a week out from that international break, you can go, okay, we want to make the change. We've got these list of five ten coaches. Let, let's start speaking to them. Let's try and get a better understanding of all the other softer stuff that is absolutely fundamental to understanding how well a coach is going to perform. Um, but at least you have some confidence that they take a lot of the performance quantifiable kind of hard characteristics um, in the first place. And surely as well, there's got to be, I mean, we talk about the ones who, who may want to make a change. But if you look at the, you know, we're recording this on the 11th of October. Um, hopefully this is the kind of podcast that people will listen to, not just this week, but, but, you know, it'll be relevant going forward. Right now, looking through the EFL, you've got, Kieran McKenna at Ipswich, uh, currently has Ipswich in second. Michael Carrick, who, you know, after a difficult start at Middlesbrough, um, currently has the mid-table. They're probably the two that you would think, in terms of their profile, are the ones who are most in danger of being poached. In League One, it's probably John Massino at Pompey, who's top, top of the league. Liam Manning at Oxford, second in the league. And then probably Luke Williams at Notts County. Um, just in terms of their, you know, their young, up-and-coming managers playing the football in a certain way. I find it very unlikely... And this might be doing them a disservice, but I, I find it pretty unlikely that those clubs are right now 
working on manager recruitment because they will be very, very happy with the, with the, with the manager that, that they have in charge. Do you think that there are ways to gain an edge by consistently analysing what's out there rather than waiting until your hand is forced? Yeah, absolutely. And we, we work with clubs and national teams at the moment on, on this topic um, around succession planning. Um, and there is absolutely an edge because fundamentally you know as you say you might be happy with your with your coach at the moment but if you've got that long list you can at least begin to have some confidence that if your coach does get poached and does go to a um you know a bigger club with bigger salaries or, or or whatever that you've got that ability to to turn to that list and and i think you know you can through the right channels actually begin to sound out some of these people have some of these conversations develop some of these relationships I think people wouldn't be staggered but maybe surprised at how kind of network driven a lot of recruitment is today and how relationship driven a lot of manager recruitment is today um, and that is an important part of it and I think as a club you've got to make sure that you've got that those relationships with the agents and with the coaches so that they're buying into it because because a lot of you know coaches that you might want to hire they're going to have options they're going to have other clubs that are going to be looking at them as well because um, hopefully you're not dipping into the pool of out of work coaches because quite often there is a reason that they they're out of work although uh, as, as we know uh, often it's unfair or you know yeah, untimely or whatever that aspect of of the network and of um you know it 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 doesn't need to be framed as you know, jobs for mates, uh, because that can be too extreme. You know, having a relationship with someone is not inherently a negative thing and does not ne- necessarily mean that they aren't the right person for the job. But I guess, Omar, it's about, you know, feeling the benefits of either employing of employing staff or having board members with great contacts who can network and can, you know, get a line into someone when necessary or just have the relationships already. I, I can't see how that could possibly be be a bad thing. However, it also strikes me that making sure you are not making the decision either solely or heavily based on personal relationships has to be part of essentially best practice when hiring a manager. Again, not to say don't hire someone just because you know them and you're worried that means you're biased, but be very aware of that and and make sure that you've got other things, you know, other mechanisms or frameworks to kind of back up your decision because it's a big decision to make. Yeah, exactly. Um, It is your, your process for hiring a manager has to be, you know, holistic, um, which uh, is a fancy way of saying it just needs to account for, for everything really. And, and that is the technical stuff, that is the softer stuff. And you're not gonna be able to do that in a four day hiring process after you've decided, after your coach has been poached or after you've decided to make a change. You just can't, that's just impossible. Um, so the best processes we've been involved in is when teams have had the luxury of a month to do the process now that might be in the summer because their coach has gone in the summer and they've got a bit more time to do it um or or, or um it's been when they have kind of known that the coach is on the way out and actually we're going to do things discreetly for a period of time and, and just get ready for when that that time is right um so yeah just just being able to kind of afford yourself a bit more time in the process because you say just go back to the point it's the most important role and in no business would you spend three four days just panicking on the phone constantly to try and get this person in and then thrust them into the role you know two days later okay you've got 
you know, you got Rotherham away, we desperately need points. Can you can you go and set up the team to do it? It's just it's kind of crazy. There, there's another real uh, bugbear of mine, and it's when I perceive a club to have uh, sacked a manager, and then through what I imagine is basically an emotional response to the the failure as they see it of a certain manager, to then essentially say we're going to hire. The, the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of profile of manager. So in in it is regularly the case, for example, that a team in the EFL would hire a first-time manager in particular, someone normally who has had a coaching career, um, often very well spoken of at, at youth level, uh, someone known for developing talent and being and or being a good coach, a tactician, you know, waiting for a chance. And uh, if and when that, that doesn't work... Uh, you know that the the sort of quick assumption seems to be well that sort of manager could never work for us and therefore we we've we've got to go back to tried and tested get back on the merry-go-round and, and get a, an experienced face in uh, that plays a, a more pragmatic style of play that that strikes me as a um you know a poor way to to look at, at any decision really in life really outcome driven outcome biased uh, but also potentially quite expensive because you know, we're talking about understanding your squad, the players that you have, understanding that changing a whole squad is, is difficult, um, albeit in League One and League Two, the contracts are pretty short, so there's probably more chance to turn over in the summer. But it's pretty expensive to hire a manager with a different style who may ne- necessarily need different players in order to, to make that work. Yeah, and as you say, it's, I'd say it's very assumption-driven. Um, you know, it's we assume that this different thing will deliver us a, a different result and actually a lot of the time these assumptions can be tested you know, to, if you're in league two if you're in league one if you're in championship you can very easily test what types of things predict success in that league or what things don't matter you know if if for example we spoke about it earlier you know if we can see a clear correlation and we can't but let's assume we could a clear, clear correlation between a coach that has more experience in League One tends to deliver you better results, then you should go out of your way to pay extra, pay a premium for a coach that's got experience in League One. But that just isn't the case. But as you say, a lot of clubs will pay that premium without testing that, that premium because they assume it's to be important. So that, that kind of rigour in the first place of understanding what drives success in your in your league and in your context is important. And then, yeah, the player the player point, like who's going to get the best out of your players? Who aligns with your your playing style, who aligns with the playing style that actually drives success in that league. All, all these things need to come in into the round and, um, and they quite often don't. I guess the other, maybe the last part really of a, of a managerial appointment process would be the the interview stage, Omar. You know, we, we, I think we've got a pretty good grasp at this stage of the pod on long listing, short listing, the sorts of, the, the, the ways in which to think. But of course, at a certain time, you need to whittle that list down. You need to invite people to interview. And while there are many benefits to measuring performance, there is also a, a massive human personality element to football management. So I'm interested to, to hear, you know, in in consulting and advising clubs, clearly the, the one of the great strengths of TFG is uh, data science and, and data intelligence. But on the interviewing process and making sure that you do that properly and end up with with the right candidate uh, after the interview process, how how would you advise a team approaching that? Do you go into it, you know, with five candidates, with them all on level pegging in your heads, or would you go into it? with one on a pedestal and kind of waiting for another to 
to to shoot them down or to to better them in the interview process. You, you you regularly hear his presentation was amazing. He interviewed so well. He knocked the board's socks off in interview, and that's what got him the job. Yeah, I think firstly, you know, if you, a lot of us or um, you know been in proper interview processes and and. It's, I think it's important as a candidate to feel like you're going through a proper process um, and that it's not, you know, jobs for the boys or you know, certain candidates, it was always destined to be them and actually it was a waste of time for you. So I think it's important that all candidates do actually feel part of the process because ultimately those candidates as a club are candidates that may be ones in the future um, but aren't ready now or, you know, there's a better candidate at the time. So running a kind of proper process where they all feel at least when they get into the final stages that they're all in the running um, is important and they are genuinely in the running. I think where the technical and the softer bit meets quite nicely is that a lot of the a lot of the data stuff tells you a lot of the what. Um, you know, it tells you how this coach has performed, what playing styles they play, their tendency to play young players or, or play recruited players or whatever. They also help you dig into the why. So they help you understand, okay, well, you played this playing style at this club and you changed it to this. Like, why did that happen? That's a question for interview that you can dig into. So it, it really helps dig into the way in which a coach works, what's driven their success, what's driven their failure, which I think is you know, fundamental in any interview process. And then there's all the other softer stuff to evaluate around communication, around leadership, around building a culture, around communicating with the media, which is such a massive part of, of management. Um, so that all has to come into the mix. And, and the best clubs use a kind of balanced scorecard approach. They've got the technical attributes, which are done through the data, done through, you know, probably a technical person at the club as well, through having watched watched the coach and done some of the scouting on the coach. So they're scored on that. They're scored on the um, the, the softer side of things. And then they're, you know, evaluated, the, the candidates are compared and evaluated and you hopefully are able to recruit the best one on that list. So, yeah, this won't, this won't come as a surprise to anyone who's ever run a kind of proper interview process. Um, and as I say, it's, it's easier to do it if you've got a month to do it um, and therefore prepared in the first instance. And actually that final stage of interviews and presentations and assessments and so on are, are done in that week where you're having to, to make the change. But you've done all that hard grunt work in the, in the two or three weeks leading up to that point. Before we let you go, Omar, um, we better have a look at the way that the EFL looks right now. We, we've mentioned a few of the managers a second ago who might be in danger, if that's the right word, um, probably is, if you're from the club's point of view, uh, in danger of being poached by, by those higher up the pyramid. Um, are there any that you see as being, you know, that the clubs should be considering a change anywhere? You think maybe that the narrative around the manager might be that they're in, in trouble, but the data suggesting that they're they're probably okay for now. Yeah, there's probably a f different ways of thinking about where your head coach is at any given point in time. Um, I think we, we spoke about, as you say, the poaching one, where you know, which will be every obvious to any club that's got a coach that's you know popular at the moment. Um, so you know, probably don't need too much data to, to tell you that. But but the other ones are probably, as you say don't don't panic clubs so those are clubs that performing pretty well so some of the underlying numbers are good and probably in line with what you would have expected pre-season for the club so a, a borough would be a good one um you know turn the results around and actually borough is a great case study at the moment of like not panicking um they you know the amount of clubs that would have changed their head coach in the situation they were in and then seen the so-called new manager bounce which we haven't really gotten into but but it's essentially what statisticians like to call regression to the mean, i.e. you probably would have improved anyway. And Borough 
great case study of they would have improved whether they had Michael Carrick as their coach or another coach. That so great example of not panicking there. There's probably a few others, the likes of a, a Reading or a Colchester United or even Sutton United in, in League Two, where actually things aren't looking as bad as what the league table suggests. So stick with. Um, then there's the ob- probably some relatively obvious ones where you you need to consider the change, and that won't be again a surprise to to fans of those clubs or those clubs themselves but those are clubs generally either way off the pace in terms of they were expected to be in the playoffs and, and aren't uh, all clubs towards the bottom end of the league so you know Rotherham United in, in the championship um, Salford City yes their form's turned around a little bit but, but may have been thinking about that a few weeks ago underlying performances still aren't that great at MK Dons as well um, so those are clubs that you're more kind of obviously um, considering the change and then there's the the real watch out group, which clubs might not be thinking about it at the moment, but actually might need to ready themselves for a change in, in the coming weeks and months, which is where perhaps the league table position looks all right, um, maybe in line with what you were hoping, what you expected pre-season. But actually the underlying performance suggests that those results aren't sustainable and you're likely to see a fall off in time. And so this is absolutely not the point to offer a coach a three year extension on their deal uh, cross your fingers and hope that they you know, continue the good run of form. It, it's really to go, okay, well, we've not played great. We've got some good results. You know, let's try and understand why perhaps we've had some good results to the point we we're making earlier. You know, is the coach a bit of a wizard and able to outperform some of these numbers or is it just a bit of, of good luck? And this is where you know, really smart clubs will be doing some of their surveillance and go, look, we just, there might be a turnaround in form and that's where the fan pressure grows. Maybe some of the players lose confidence. You know, some of these, all these kind of contextual factors come into play and actually you need to decide that, that you make a change. So, you know, there are clubs like the likes of Bolton or, or, or Shrewsbury in, in League One or, or, or Morecambe or even Stockport County in, in League Two that might be in some of those situations at the moment where results might not sustain as, as they are and therefore, you know, you just need to be a little bit cautious around um, being too, too excited about the league position at this point in time. Well, the main idea of mine for, for this special episode was essentially to get smarter myself uh, and hopefully to bring George along for the ride, albeit he backs his managerial opinions more than anyone else I've ever met. Um, and, and I think we've absolutely achieved that. So a huge thank you to, to Omar for joining us. I mean, to, to get this level of insight into um, how this massive part of football works uh, when it's not the sort of thing that you would have uh, spoken openly about from people you know very much at the coalface within clubs but to have had Omar um, who's who's been a part of so many of these processes with 21st group um, talking us through it has been an absolute treat so uh, a massive thank you uh, for joining us Omar thanks guys good to be on to, to be able to think about this stuff George more more broadly about where we stand and what we think is the right way to do things helps with our analysis of individual situations rather than get into a situation which is easy to do where you're just constantly reacting to individual context of individual managers and clubs and that's where you can get a little bit lost in in like what you actually think overall yeah absolutely definitely um and that is why you know when you get these learnings um, there's no shortage of, <laughs> of what you can kind of take into this there's so much nuance that goes into all these decision making so um, yeah absolutely I mean and also I think I'd be interested to hear what the listeners made of, of what Omar had to say and you know hopefully Omar will, will get you back on again fairly soon and if anyone's got any questions for him then maybe that will help us persuade him to come on for another special in the next couple of weeks guys Great to chat. I hope everyone's enjoyed this bonus episode of the NTT20 podcast and we'll be back again soon on the same feed. Go well. 
Hmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.